Hi, Michael Isikoff here. I'm the chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News, the co-host of Skullduggery, and the host of the podcast Conspiracy Land, a six-part deep dive into the unsolved murder of DNC staff member Seth Rich. I'm excited to say that Conspiracy Land has just been nominated for Best Documentary Podcast by the Webby Awards. This is where you, our Skullduggery listeners, come in. You can vote for Conspiracy Land to win the People's Voice Award for Best Documentary Podcast. All you have to do is head over to thewebbyawards.com. That's thewebbyawards.com. Search Conspiracy Land and place your vote. And if you haven't heard the podcast, what are you waiting for? It's just been nominated for Best Documentary Podcast. Thewebbyawards.com. Search Conspiracy Land and let's vote this thing to victory. Let's say your governor lifts coronavirus restrictions in your state. You go back to work. Then you get a call from a contact tracer informing you that you were recently in close proximity to an infected person. And while there's no evidence you're actually sick, for safety's sake, it is recommended you should self-quarantine for two weeks. But you need that paycheck. The rent is due. There are kids to feed. Will you tell your boss and hope she will pay for you to stay home for 14 days, not for being sick, but for possibly becoming sick? Will you share your condition with another parent if your kids really want a play date? What if you know a coworker has been contacted? Will you turn them in if they keep coming to work? So writes former Time Magazine editor-in-chief Nancy Gibbs in a fascinating new piece in the Washington Post entitled, Forget Swabs, We All Need to Take a Character Test. Gibbs poses some of the toughest ethical questions yet about the virus, questions all of us may soon have to grapple with. We'll talk to Nancy Gibbs about these character test questions, and we'll check in with our regular medical experts, Dr. Kavita Patel and Lena Wen, about where the trend lines are heading in the pandemic on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I got to say, when I read this Nancy Gibbs piece about some of these really tough ethical questions that we all could be facing very soon, it really ratcheted up my thinking. I mean, this is, you know, these are pretty thorny questions. And I don't know that there's right or wrong to all of them. Yes. The issue is that we have to make certain sacrifices to protect the health of the country. And and I think we have to sort of conclude as a society that I will make those sacrifices because if I do, it will protect other people, but indirectly it will also protect me. And this and the system breaks down 
if you don't follow that kind of basic social contract. But we are living in a time right now when you know the country is enormously divided. It's uh, very easy for people to make decisions based on that's influenced by the kind of political polarization that we're living through. We have politicians, including the president of the United States, who seems eager to give the country permission not to do the things that uh, they probably we probably need to do collectively. And so it's going to be a big challenge and a huge question going forward to see if we can rise to the challenge, because I think there's still a sense in this country that this is uh, a, a disease that you know, just one day will go away. It'll be eradicated, and it will, but it's going to take a really long time. It's going to be with us for for uh, many, many months and probably a bunch of years. Yeah, I guess what kind of like uh, hit home for me is we've posed this as a choice of public policy, what governors should be doing, what the White House should be recommending in terms of when to go back, when to lift restrictions. But at the end of the day, This is not as much a public policy question as it's going to be a personal question for all of us. What do we do? What steps do we take? How far do we go in self-quarantining and maintaining restrictions when it might actually hurt? us and our families. And I think uh, that's what makes this so difficult. But, you know, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with uh, Nancy Gibbs about these issues. A couple of other items we should take note of. The New York Times is reporting, number one, that the uh, Trump White House may be winding down the coronavirus task force. I guess the plan here and and the Times says in the next few weeks. So I guess the idea is um, they're going to declare victory and uh, and move on. Yeah, it sounds like uh, they are going to phase it out over a few weeks. The plan was not to make any kind of a formal announcement and that they are going to shift efforts toward therapies and developing a vaccine. I, I don't really understand why they would do this. You know, why not have the you know, a kind of coordinated government effort. There's still a lot of things that need to be done and, and, and a lot of leading that needs to be done at the national effort beyond developing a vaccine, like testing, which isn't where it should be, like contact tracing, you know, where federal government coordination is going to be hugely important. If you read kind of deep into that New York Times story, uh, there is a suggestion that this may have less to do with governance and more to do with a power play, perhaps being led by Jared Kushner. They point out that Jared Kushner has been running a shadow coronavirus task force all along, and perhaps um, that task force will step into the spotlight after the other one fades away. We'll just just have to see. Why don't we just let... Jared Kushner run the whole government. I mean, he seems to have taken control over a big chunk of it. But like, why sort of muck around with anybody else at this point? At the end of the day, he's calling the shots. He's running the show. And I got to say, there are have been a number of developments which suggest that all kind of skullduggery roads lead (laughs) to Jared (laughs) Kushner. So at the same time as this task force, we learn, is, is going to be disbanded, which might redound to the benefit of Jared Kushner, 
Um, there is also the news that Dr. Rick Bright, who our listeners will recall was the uh, HHS scientist who was pushed out of his job because he was uh, complaining about the administration touting hydroxychloroquine as a therapy for coronavirus. Um, and he's now filed a whistleblower complaint with the Office of Special Counsel in which he's alleging cronyism and favoritism in the steering of contracts to well-connected lobbyists connected to the, to the White House and, according to his complaint, to a CEO, a drug company CEO who's close to Jared Kushner. Um, I'm so shocked. What <laughs> I know. What, I'm truly what did, shocked. What yes. did uh, Rahm Emanuel say during the uh, economic crisis in 2008? Never waste a good crisis. It seems to me that uh, they've kind of repurposed that expression in, in this administration. Never waste a, you know, never waste a, a national tragedy to fleece the government. And finally, going back to the original point about the uh, the, the Jared. Kushner task force, perhaps, you know, kind of taking over here. The Washington Post has a story, which I I just noted, that a a part of the Kushner initiative has been to organize an effort to gather personal protective equipment, so-called PPE. And he brought in people from the private sector, all these, you know, violent volunteers from consulting companies and uh, private equity companies. And now one of the uh, uh, members of that task force, one of those volunteers, has filed a complaint with the House Government Oversight Committee saying that uh, the people on that task force who were doing this had no idea what they were doing. They didn't have the experience. They weren't getting anything done. <laughs> so this is the task force that may be, that may be taking over. And, um, you know, Jared Kushner may be running the government now. Question is, um, is that actually, would that actually be any better than his father-in-law running the government in terms of competence? I have my, I have my doubts. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a Hobson's choice for you right there. (laughs) Who should be calling the shots, Trump or his son-in-law? All good questions, good fodder for skullduggery, but we've got... Three really good guests and experts to talk to, so let's get to it. We now have with us Nancy Gibbs, longtime writer and editor at Time Magazine, editor-in-chief, in fact, and now the director of the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Nancy, welcome to Skullduggery. Nice to be with you. And I have to say it is a a special treat for Clydeman and I to have our longtime competitor at time. Of course, uh, for many years, uh, Clydeman and I would wait to see what you were writing in your many cover stories for time and see how they... uh, Compared to our own versions, uh, sometimes a nerve-wracking experience. Oh man, I remember it was. Yeah. It seems like most Monday mornings, or I guess sometimes we would see the magazine on Sunday. We would take the Newsweek cover and the Time cover, open them up to the cover stories, and like compare the Nancy Gibbs lead and the Evan Thomas lead. Evan Evan was Newsweek's version of Nancy Gibbs, wrote all the big news covers, and it was... we did that with bated breath. It was always pretty, very nervous, uh, pretty intense uh, experience. Very, um, very worthy competitors, <laughs> and I, I, I would say that having both of them uh, writing 
for those great magazines uh, that people used to read in mass numbers uh, was a was a good thing for the republic. Okay, now that you've made us all feel 10,000 years old. (laughs) (laughs) A bygone era. (laughs) Um, Anyway, we have uh, Nancy on the show today because of a really sharp column she wrote in the Washington Post. Headline, forget swabs, we all need to take a character test. In which, Nancy, you point out that as social distancing and other restrictions start to lift... We're all going to have to make some really tough choices. And I don't think I had thought through these as much as I should until I read your column in which you posed a lot of hypotheticals that were really confounding. Tell us about that. What inspired you to write this and how difficult some of these choices are going to be for all of us? This came out of conversations I was having with people who were a little further away from ground zero. So I'm in the greater New York area, and so we're still, you know, for the foreseeable future, nothing's opening up real soon. But when I talked to a close friend in Georgia, as the governor is lifting the lockdown and hearing about the decisions that she was facing, and then people in other parts of the country that either hadn't seen as many cases or where even though the curve had not flattened, those businesses are starting to open, the hair salons are starting to open, the bowling alleys, the tattoo parlors, where it's now the choice is not from the government about what individuals are doing. It's up to individuals of at what point are you comfortable? And I think the one that really got me thinking about this was a conversation about someone who had lost someone close to them and was devastated about the debate over whether you can even have a funeral. And it got me thinking, okay, if, if someone I was close to invited me to come to a funeral, would I feel comfortable going? We know that there were funerals that ended up being kind of super spreading hot zones early in the outbreak. And then you start thinking about as schools start to reopen, if you have a child with any kind of health issue, whether it's asthma or diabetes, are you comfortable sending them back? If the only way you can get back to work and pay your rent uh, is if your kids are not at home all day, then how do you make that calculation? And so it just struck me that this becomes a very intimate set of, of risk analyses of trade-offs between safety and privacy that, you know, remind me of debates we were having after 9-11 about safety versus privacy. And it, it is going to be so individualized, so specific to people's own sense of freedom and fear and loyalty to their families versus to one another, their calculation of self-interest versus public interest. And we those are muscles that we have never had to use in quite this kind of way, I think. Well, so Nancy, I guess my question is, and it's maybe impossible to know, we're going to have to see, but do you think that we are actually capable of doing this? What you're describing is essentially a kind of a national honor system and in a, you know, kind of a political climate where politicians, including the president of the United States, maybe mostly the president, are giving us a kind of a permission structure to do what we want. How big of a challenge is this? And you mentioned 9-11, where the society did kind of transform itself in some important ways. 
What is your sense of, of our ability to actually transform ourselves in the ways that we need to uh, deal with this crisis? Well, we're, 9-11 is sort of as not only the last you know, really kind of national catastrophe that stopped us all in our tracks in a different way than this, obviously. But one thing that I remember remarking on over and over and over and over again after 9-11 was the extraordinary unity and often tremendous sacrifice that that attack elicited in people. And, you know, as someone who, you know, worked in midtown Manhattan, I saw it every single day. You saw it in the way people interacted on the streets and on the subways and just the way we looked at each other of this sense of, you know, we're all in this together. And it wasn't that we didn't have hard choices to make at every level then of when were you comfortable getting on an airplane again. And certainly in the in the more national issues over the debate over the Patriot Act, there were a lot of values that were in real tension. But that was such a different time than now. And you're right about the challenge of the honor system. Pretty much every public health official you talk to now uh, agrees about that reopening successfully and without a huge resurgence of infection is going to depend on much more widespread testing and contact tracing. But if you think about how that works, it depends on people telling the truth, even when their own self-interest and economic interest may indicate differently. So, you know, if a contract tracer were to call you and say, we've, it's been indicated that you were within six feet of someone who has tested positive, you should self-isolate for the next 14 days. Does that depend on you being able to trust that you can call your boss and say, you know, I've been told I need to stay home and I'm not sick and I have no symptoms, but I might possibly get sick and trust that your boss will will accept that and hold your job open for you. There are a million different ways. You know, that was one that really grabbed me. So, you know, you pose this as a character test, which implies that there is a right or wrong, or if you take the responsible route, you are a person of good character, and if you expose others, you're a person of bad characters. But your hypotheticals are pretty tough ones. I mean, let's take that one. You've been told you were in contact with somebody who was exposed. You don't know that you're sick. Your employer is not going to pay you for the two weeks you you would presumably self-quarantine. Do you take the financial hit, lose your paycheck for two weeks? Do you not send your kids back to school if one of them is a diabetic when the schools have opened? If it means you got to stay home and you're going to lose your paycheck for an indefinite period of time? It seems to me that there aren't easy answers to any of these. And actually, at the end of the piece, I say all these questions are hard and there aren't right answers. I think it's easier probably for us to agree where there are wrong answers. Obviously, if you know, for instance, that you have tested positive, but you keep going to work because you need the paycheck, you know, I think it's it's easy for people to agree that that would, you know, that that would be a wrong. (laughs) That would be wrong. (laughs) Right. That would be wrong. But no, in most of these cases, it's and character. You're you're exactly right that it makes it too binary as though people are good or evil. They're going to do right or wrong. And in fact, what I'm thinking more about is it's the tension between 
our different values, our different fears, the different pressures that we experience and how we're going to process those. So that because ultimately, the one thing we don't have a choice about is we're going to have to make a decision. You're either going to send your child back to school or not. You're either going to tell your employer or not. And so what are going to be the ingredients of that decision? What is going to weigh most heavily on us? And I'm not sure that any of us, if we're honest, knows you know, presumptively what our answers will be, because exactly because the questions are so hard. I think, say the obvious, one of the obligations of both employers and government and the whole purpose of emergency planning is actually to take critical decisions and impossibly difficult decisions out of the hands of individuals, to make the decisions less hard to not have it devolve on each of us to be facing these kinds of impossible choices. And so I think one of the things that would make many of these dilemmas a lot easier is, for instance, if if testing were much more widely available, if the social safety net did not have so many holes in it, if access even to personal protective equipment were more widely available. So as people are going out into public they're less likely to infect other people or you know, be at the same risk themselves. Part of the problem that we're seeing is that we just, not only were we not prepared for this, and I don't you know, particularly hold it against people to have not foreseen something. I think we're still all shocked of what has occurred in such a short period of time, but that we're still leaving people, particularly on the economic side, with such impossible choices to make in balancing their safety, other people's safety, and their livelihoods. Nancy, how much do you think this is endemic to our own kind of unique American culture that, you know, in countries that have more social cohesion, or maybe there is more of a kind of a communitarian ethos that they may be better prepared to make the kinds of sacrifices that we now are being called to make in this country, uh, some you know, Asian countries, for example. And maybe it's also the political culture. You made the reference to 9-11 and the unity that we had at that time, which we don't seem to have anymore. So I'm really glad you raised those cultural distinctions because a lot of people have pointed to them as, as helping to account for the success that we've seen in places like South Korea. And while I would never discount the importance of culture, I think it's also really easy to overestimate it. I think competent leadership is the most salient factor. And the other thing that the, some of the Asian cultures and, and countries that have been more successful had in common is they had a much more significant dress rehearsal in having dealt with SARS. They had reflexes and public health infrastructure in place that was vastly superior to anything that we had here. And so the combination of preparedness and competence, I think, has every bit as much or more to do than notions about social trust. Having said that, I followed the research about institutional trust and individual trust pretty closely. And I do think it is a significant challenge to us that we have seen both of those declining steadily, and not just in the last couple of years. Those have been declining over the last 40 years. And so if you have significantly less trust in in your institutions and your national leaders and very, you know, different levels of trust at an individual level, you know, trust has kind of become a luxury good in a lot of particularly in western societies. More highly educated, high-income people tend to have greater trust both in institutions and individuals. And that has real implications for 
how they behave. And so now we have we find ourselves in a situation where at some level we're just going to have to trust each other and trust our institutions. And that's not been at all where the trend lines have been pointing, not in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I would think that uh, Trump's presidency has uh, confounded the dynamic on this, uh, in which uh, a lot of people who might have in previous surveys uh, hire wealthier people, more educated people might have tended to have more trust in the government. I, I wonder whether that's still the case with this president and this administration. But, you know, taking a step back, I mean, in light of that and all the other many factors, do we really want the government to be making these kind of tough choices for us as opposed to making it ourselves? Well, vicious circle. If you don't trust the government, that your government has given you reason not to trust them, then you don't want them making these decisions, right? But it, it's a little too broad a brush, I think. We, we just did the first wave of a huge 50-state survey at the Shorenstein Center in partnership with Northeastern, exactly to understand people's attitudes about who they're listening to, how they're behaving, how they're thinking. And what we're finding is that while people don't have much trust in our national institutions, either in the president or the Congress, they have quite a bit of trust in scientists, scientific institutions, the CDC, the experts, and in more local leaders. The governors in particular, in many cases, are getting very high marks. And this is not a, this is where it's too easy to just say we're so politically polarized that that affects everything. You've got, as we've seen, you've got Republican governors in very blue states like Charlie Baker in Massachusetts or, you know, Larry Hogan, who have gotten extremely high marks for their handling of this. And one thing that you're seeing pretty consistently is it's is true, too, of Mike DeWine in Ohio, is the governors who are clearly making their decisions based on the data and and having the science. There's no you know certainty in epidemiology, but to the extent that it's clear to people listening to these governors that that the scientists are very much at the table helping drive the calculations, that increases people's confidence in the decisions that are coming out of out of government at that level. Nancy, I want to go back to sort of just the conduct, the behavior of everyday Americans and whether you are seeing any hopeful signs that Americans will be able to make the right choices, uh, make the sacrifices that need to be made. You know, because it does seem to me that social pressure or peer pressure, so there's certain kinds of social incentives that maybe are beginning to take hold. You know, you see people, maybe not in the, in the numbers that we need them to be, but, you know, huge percentages of Americans are wearing masks. And not because they know it's going to protect them directly, but because it will protect others and yet there is a kind of a social contract dynamic here that if I wear a mask, then others will, and that might prevent me from contracting the virus. So I just wonder if those kinds of social dynamics can really have a, a large impact in terms of uh, the, the conduct that we really need Americans to engage in. So I think you've identified what's going to be maybe the most visible and fascinating measure about where people's thinking is. Because you're right, that mask wearing is certainly much less about protecting yourself. 
maybe if it keeps you from, you know, touching your face, maybe it has some, you know, some masks have varying levels of protection that they provide. But the main point of them, as you note, is to protect other people. But they also have the power to signal that, one, this is something to be taken seriously. Two, that things are not normal right now. Three, that we all need to be putting other people's interest front of mind and front of face. I mean, in a, in a very literal way to signal this kind of we're all in this together. And here's a very simple way that we can all do our part. The, the tension is in places where the whole idea of self-isolation, of lockdowns, of non-essential businesses closing, and of mask wearing is taken as an assault on liberty. Where yeah. there, the, the semiotics and the signaling are all about, I'm a believer in individual liberty, therefore I am going to assert my right not to wear a mask. Yeah, it's become part of the culture, the coronavirus culture war. So you have this performative element in both cases, and it becomes much harder to create the kind of circumstance where this is a way that we signal to one another a kind of unity of purpose if it is intention. Again, this is all about a tension between values. And if the tension, because we care about liberty too, I think one real way to undermine people's liberty is for them to get really sick with a horrible virus. So, Yeah, right. And, you know, for that matter, I mean, I, I am I will admit to being really tired of the kind of the false binary between we can either, you know, protect people's health or protect the economy. I just don't see and maybe I'm wrong, but I think the next couple of weeks will prove one way or another as more and more states open up. If people don't feel safe going to a mall or going to a bowling alley or going to a restaurant, you can open up every bowling alley in the country and they're still going to be empty. The economy is not going to rebound with people flooding back into, you know, stadiums and concert halls and restaurants and malls if they don't feel like we have a public health crisis under control. I think these are the same challenge, not two conflicting ones. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm mindful of, of the performances that create a, a false tension, which I think is very misleading and, and ultimately destructive. You know, I just from the political perspective, I'm just sort of thinking if this had happened under Obama and it was Obama who was imposing or recommending the kinds of restrictions we're seeing, or if it had Hillary Clinton had won 2016 and it was she who was doing it, the political reaction in a lot of these states, the rebellion against being told by Washington what to do and where you could go and whether your business can open up or not, it would seem to me it would be 10 times what it is now. We're seeing these, you know, rebellions uh, and protests in many of the states, but I think it would be a lot worse if it was a Democratic administration ordering these sorts of shutdowns, don't you think? Yes. I mean, as you know, as you say that and you, you your mind goes to the sort of the alternative reality, yes, I can imagine it, it being much worse. I think, though, again, it, is there you know, what does what does the middle way look like? I was fascinated by how Mike DeWine handled the mask issue in Ohio, where initially he wanted to make mask wearing mandatory if you were going to be out in public places where you couldn't maintain social distancing. And, you know, Ohio is a is a pretty good kind of, you know, microcosm of the country in terms of having very strong, you know, red and blue areas in it. And there was a lot of blowback 
about that. And he ended up backing off and making it mandatory and reframing it as still strongly encouraging people to do it, but making it more on the autonomy and the choices of individuals. And I, and I, so I'm very curious about whether one, the fact that he's a Republican and two, the fact that he made it, this is a matter of your choice. I'm going to make the case for why the right choice to make is to wear a mask but to take a little bit of the of the heat out of the reflexive rebellion, you can't tell me what to do yeah. response to it. I noticed that, too. I, I suspect it was the right choice. And he's been pretty deft all along um, in how he's handled these uh, public health choices. But it, it's a really interesting example. I just want to come back uh, just to close out here, Nancy, to uh, some of those hypotheticals you posed, starting with the one we talked about before. You get notified by a contact tracer that you were exposed to an infected person, not that you're sick. What do you do? Do you tell your boss? You've been a boss. You are a boss at the Shorenstein Center. You've been a boss at Time Magazine. What's the right answer here? What If you were a boss and you found out that one of your employees had been so notified and, say, didn't tell you, and let's say it's one of your less well-compensated employees, somebody who might be working in a either janitorial or secretarial position, and that person tells you, but I need the money. I cannot live for another two weeks if you're not paying me. What do you do? Well, this is where I think it's a, the, the enormous difference between if you're an organization that remotely has the resources to create a culture that says we have to be protecting one another. It isn't just that we're protecting this business, we're protecting our profits. We are, you know, our success depends on how we operate together. And I tend to think that that successful businesses are wise to create that culture as a real contributor to their success and to the loyalty of their employees and the way they perform. And God knows it I've always felt since I always knew I was going to ask people who worked for me to have to drop everything and go above me on the call of duty when news broke or when something happened, that the flip side of that is for them to trust that I also have their, their well-being at heart. And so in that sense, as a boss, that's almost an easy one. If I've done my job as a boss, then an employee knows that they can tell me the truth and I will find a way to continue to support them while they do what is best for my other employees, which is which is to self-isolate. But again, this would be much easier for all employers if we had much, much, much easier, better access to testing. So it was easier to tell both to, to serology tests and as well as testing for the virus to know who may have already had it, who might be immune, who might be having it now. And the reports of people who have very good reason, you know, who are still frontline uh, essential workers who think they may have been exposed and can't get tested is just horrifying. And it's making the decisions for both them and their families and their employers that much harder because of the uncertainty that that goes with with word that you may have been exposed. You know, the answer answer is get get tested. And yes, you could be. You know, be, having no symptoms doesn't tell us anything because we know how many positive asymptomatic cases there are. Right. But, but it, you know, the the way that these choices become much easier is if it's really is much 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 easier for anyone who gets notified 
to not only self-isolate, but to get tested quickly. Well, look, these are really tough questions, and um, you've done a great job in posing them and getting us to start thinking about them. The piece is Forget Swabs. We all need to take a character test by Nancy Gibbs in today's Washington Post. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are now joined by our regular skullduggery Corona guests, uh, Dr. Kavita Patel, Yahoo News medical contributor and former Obama administration health official, and Dr. Lena Wen, former public health commissioner in Baltimore and a uh, professor of public health at George Washington University. Doctors, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me to be here. So, look, a lot of people trying to figure out exactly where we are. We've got states reopening, businesses reopening in some quarters, yet the numbers are still stubbornly high. 1.2 million cases now, over 70,000 deaths. I want to get start out by just asking both of you, where do you think we are in terms of trying to flatten the curve on the coronavirus. That was the whole premise behind social distancing and the other restrictions and where we are headed in coming weeks. Kavita, why don't you start out? Sure. And I think it's probably important to say that there's been a number of models that have been kind of put out there. And I would all these models kind of depend on the data you put inside of them. And I think that's just a kind of a fancy way of saying that nobody really knows. But I think the one thing we do know is that anytime you do stuff such as important public health work in piecemeal, meaning one state's reopening, or even within a state, cities are kind of giving different guidance. It is incredibly difficult to imagine that we are not going to have hot spots or we are not going to have some kind of problematic backlash from that strategy And the data so far tells us that when we had a more national message to stay at home, kind of the White House 30 days, CDC guidance 30 days at home, which recently expired, that that actually did result in less Americans physically moving around. We actually have data from GPS tracking that shows that. So we know that doing these things in piecemeal and reopening is incredibly concerning. And probably for both Dr. Wen and myself, All we have to do is kind of talk to our physician and nurse colleagues who are in these cities and they're incredibly, they're incredibly worried and they are all telling their own patients and their own colleagues that even if you are in an area that has quote loosened restrictions and they have even perhaps met the 14 day guidelines, declining cases, et cetera, do everything you can to stay at home when possible. And I think that just speaks to the fact Mike, that we're not in the clear, and I'm certainly concerned that we've been talking about a second wave when we haven't even really finished this first wave. Dr. Wen? 
Yeah, um, I agree with Kavita. Um, we know what this virus does. And the virus hasn't changed in this time that uh, between when we impose social distancing and then now that we're taking it away, our science hasn't changed. I mean, we don't yet have a vaccine. We don't yet have a cure. This is still a very highly transmissible virus that spreads from person to person, which means that as soon as we lift the social distancing, as soon as we lift the measures that have been keeping the virus at bay, we know what's going to happen. It's just that unlike last time, we know the surge is going to occur all over the country because we're seeing that in New York, that there is a decrease, again, because of social distancing, because it worked. There is a plateau, but at least that plateau is going down. But if you look at what's happening all across the country, and that's even before these measures have been lifted, if you look at what happening, what's happening around the country, you'll see that if you exclude New York, the rest of the country, the number of cases are actually increasing. And we will be seeing an explosive surge when these restrictions are being lifted. And this time, unlike last time, it appears to be a conscious choice that even though we know this is going to occur, we're deciding to do this anyway. So talk to us about the different ways that we can mitigate the risks of that resurgence, of that second wave. What are the things, I mean, I think the American people sort of have to begin to realize that this is, you know, we talk about flattening the curve. But this is not a disease that's going away. We're going to be living with this uh, for a long time. So what are the things that we need to be doing right now to mitigate against that going forward? Kavita, why don't you start? And then Dr. Wen, uh, we want to hear from you. And one other thing that we're going to want to get into, which may be part of this conversation, is the whole notion of herd immunity. Okay, great. Sure. And I'll, I'll just start with mitigation. There have been a number of studies some of them have criticized mitigation measures, saying things, for example, that social distancing alone is not really that great, or school closures, for example, aren't, are not that effective. But I think when people such as myself and Dr. Wen talk about mitigation, we're talking about these strategies together, and it's social distancing, continuing to close schools, and trust me, as a, a mother that desperately wants my children to go to school, I understand that. That brings up another issue that our American society has not grappled with, which is child care. But so school closures, social distancing, non-medical masks, hand hygiene, and just changing the way we kind of interact with each other to try to keep as little contact as possible. Those things are the things that we can do even in places that have reopened. However, on top of that, I can't emphasize enough that another, whether you call it a true mitigation strategy or just really a good public health strategy, has to be the ability to do kind of the contact tracing and isolation. And there's not enough that's been spoken about those two issues. You heard a lot about testing, which is very important. But in order to kind of and, and mitigation is usually preventive. So tracing and isolation are when you actually find someone who's positive. But I put these all together because you can't have one without the other. So we as individuals can do our part by kind of distancing, keeping our kids out of large groups, staying away from movie theaters and tattoo parlors and places that might expose us and other people. But I think we also have to do this in conjunction with some of these common sense public health they're basic building blocks. I can tell you, I promise Dr. Wen and myself, like when I first trained in public health, I did contact tracing on multi-drug resistant TB patients and this stuff actually works. 
but you have to plan for it and you have to pay for it, which is a tricky issue. But we are so far behind on contact tracing, are we? I mean, don't you need a, like a literal army of contact tracers, hundreds of thousands of people who are going to be calling and knocking on doors and physically reaching out to people? I mean, do you, do either of you have any sense at all that we are really moving aggressively to actually implement an effective uh, regimen of contact tracing. So this is a good day for us to be, talk to be talking about contact tracing because the Molan Institute, where I am at, at GW, we're about to release, I think any time now, a new model for estimating the number of contact tracers that we need in the workforce. And this will be together with ASTO and NATO, which are the two organizations that work with the state and local health officials in the country. And what we are estimating is actually in line with other estimates that, that people have made, which is we're estimating in the range of at least 160,000 contact tracers, additional people that we will need in order to do this work. So contact tracing, as Dr. Patel was saying, it is the bread and butter of public health. It's what local and state public health officials do every single day. And when I ran the health department in Baltimore, we did contact tracing around Legionnaire's disease and measles. And whenever there were any infectious illness, that's what we did. We figured out who tests positive, whom they were exposed to in their infectious period, and we traced down all of those contacts. That's it's the bread and butter. It's what people know how to do. Um, it's something that, that does require specialized training, but you don't need a public health degree, a medical degree, a nursing degree to do. But it is very time intensive and labor intensive. Now, individual health departments around the country and various states are looking to ramp up the number of tracers that they might have. They're looking to repurpose, for example, existing staff. Um, many of the health departments that I know have looked into converting their school health nurses because school is out into doing contact tracing. But this is not a long-term solution, and it's certainly not going to get us to the capacity that we need. And so ultimately what we need, just as with testing, is a national strategy. We need a national coordinated strategy so that we don't have 50 states all doing their own recruitment, their own training, their own deployment, which, which frankly doesn't make any sense. Local departments should be allowed to scale up in the way that they need to meet local needs. And maybe there are issues with making sure that there are people with the right language and cultural competence, but you still need a national strategy, just like you do with testing. So I, I've got a couple of questions about the impact of social distancing restrictions, because when you look state by state, I have a hard time seeing a real correlation between the degree of restrictions imposed and actual outcomes. Massachusetts, which has been fairly vigorous in imposing these restrictions and fairly early, you know, number three, it, nearly 70,000 cases with, you know, deaths per 1,599,000. That's pretty high. You look at a state like Georgia, where obviously uh, they've been a lot looser, they've had the beaches open, and the caseload is a lot smaller. Deaths per uh, million is uh, 122. That's a lot less than Massachusetts. Maryland, which has been hailed for imposing very tough restrictions, got, has 232 per 1 million. That's nearly twice what Georgia has. So 
please explain to me why we are so wedded to social distancing and these restrictions when I don't see a real correlation between the imposition of them and what we're actually seeing in numbers of cases and in deaths. So I'll start, and, and, and I'm sure Dr. Wen can probably also expand our thinking. I think you're absolutely right to kind of point to social distancing in and of itself does not seem to completely kind of lead to what all of us have as an intended outcome, decreased deaths, decreased cases. However, this is where I would say to you that, one, it's absolutely not evenly applied. I would just tell you that you can actually look at the numbers by when social distancing, for example, in Massachusetts was introduced, and also look simultaneously at their kind of per capita testing, which was higher than Georgia, and look at the drop in, really for a lot of us, what we've been looking at is kind of the numbers of new cases. And that has a lot to do with testing and a lot to do with those social distancing measures. So you're correct, Mike, that when you point out deaths, that has, unfortunately, I will say to you that I can tell you firsthand from talking to some of the public health officials in Georgia, that there is a lot of sentiment that there are still unrecorded deaths because of delays in the state around testing. Massachusetts started earlier and Georgia started later, and people fear that we're going to still uncover so much. So I'm not trying to say that they have more deaths than Massachusetts, but there's certainly still a story we have not heard there. Social distancing has not been evenly applied. On top of that, I think Governor Baker did a pretty aggressive stance early on with limiting retail businesses to be open as well. Finally, he actually put into place, in conjunction with a local area hospitals, a much more kind of widespread, it's not perfect, but a more widespread strategy around um, trying to prevent people from coming to the hospital by testing early and actually putting in kind of isolation guidance in homes. And I really do think that these things actually do have an effect I think it's unfortunate that the outcome, which many governors who have reopened states have said, social distancing does not matter. And then finally, I'll say that as an individual, social distancing, it's not just the deaths and the mortality. We do know, and there is data to support, that social distancing has led to being able to kind of control that tidal wave that has been hitting, for example, New York City hospitals, where the ER, Dr. Wen's an emergency room physician, she knows better than me, but in emergency rooms are just getting, we're getting flooded with people who were just not even sure if they had symptoms. And so I do believe that those things taken in conjunction make a huge difference. I will tell you, though, this is something in public health that we know, correlation is not causation, rather, that just because social distancing does not directly cause a decrease in mortality does not mean that social distancing combined with other things lead to an outcome we desire, which is a decrease in new cases. And I'll add to that, if, if I can, that we also don't know the counterfactual, right? I mean, there's no way for us to know if we did not impose social distancing in New York, what would it have been like instead? I mean, we can we have plenty of models that illustrate that had these measures not been in place, that hospitals, to Dr. Patel's point, would be much worse than they were. That, unfortunately, there would be patients who are put into the position, physicians put into the position of choosing which patients get to live and die because of limited ventilators. I mean, there is, I agree that social distancing needs to be done in conjunction with other measures. I think it's also a matter, too, of timing that you can see in states that did social distancing aggressively early, consistently, like California and Washington, 
that they were able to significantly flatten the curve and prevent an outbreak um, uh, of the type that was seen in, in New York. But the problem is that counterfactual is really difficult. And actually, this is the problem that plagues public health in general, that you don't see what could have been. And therefore, we don't understand the purpose of all these preventive measures really until it's not done and then we see the consequence. I actually wanted to follow up on that because one of the things I, I was going to ask both of you is I think the last time we spoke, we were still in a period where the real crisis that everyone was preoccupied with was the idea that our health system was going to collapse, that that we just didn't have the capacity in emergency rooms, ICUs, ventilators. It looks as if we averted disaster. Um, how much of that is because of the mitigation measures that you have been talking about, social distancing, others? And is there some sense in which we may have also kind of overestimated the risk of that happening? What's your, what's your analysis of why it didn't happen? And I guess, how close did we come to it happening? I mean, I, I think it is because of social distancing that we yeah. averted that catastrophe, because that was the purpose of social distancing, the flattening of the curve, right? That we understood that we would have, we would still see an increase in the number of infections. We're still going to have hospitalizations. We're still going to have deaths. But the purpose of social distancing was to prevent all those individuals from getting sick at the same time and flooding our healthcare system all at once. And now we are seeing this slow trickle. I mean, at a very high rate, don't get me wrong, we're seeing this plateau in the number of cases in New York, but the plateau is at a very high level. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone in New York is saying that the, um, is saying that we're in the clear. There's still overcapacity everywhere. However, it's not at the point that we've had to ration scarce resources and patients had to die of preventable deaths that way. And I guess my fear now is that what's happening in New York can be replicated all across the country. And that's just a very terrifying place to be, considering it still actually is preventable. Right, right. And there's one one more thing that's kind of a, a nice little, we're, we're, we're putting in a lot of like public health concepts for, for people here. But there is something called in research called the Hawthorne effect that like if you watch something and kind of measure it, People tend to respond. It's, it's the reason you have fake security cameras on the exteriors of buildings, because that just in and of itself is or those little lawn signs that say that you have a security system because that can prevent burglary or theft. I would say to you a lot of like social distancing and just physically kind of having this like notion of we should all be six feet from each other. It does start to put into place almost this kind of mindset of like, well, if I see people getting too close to each other, then that can be a risky behavior. And actually in public, this is exactly what we want. We want for there to be this sense of, wait a minute, we shouldn't hug people. We probably should never shake hands because that can be risky. And so it's hard to know what I kind of, the reason I'm introducing this concept is that once we start relaxing those things and sending the signal that that's not as important and you see those images of kind of crowds on a beach Unfortunately, that's like sending a signal that, well, that's okay because, you know, none of those people got coronavirus and that's all right. And that's exactly the opposite, which is why I have said to my own family, we're all going to probably be spending the rest of the year, if not a good part of 2021, doing social distancing, non-medical masks, et cetera. 
Well, I, I want to raise another public health concept, which I mentioned before, which is this idea of uh, herd immunity. And it relates to what I think you were just saying, Kavita, because I was reading a little bit about what the Swedes are doing, and they've gotten a lot of criticism for not imposing the same kind of really stringent measures that their neighbors in Scandinavia have and much of the rest of the world has. The theory is, and they sort of deny it, but that they're really what they're looking for is herd immunity so that a you know large percent of the country can get the disease, recover from it, and then transmissions will start to come down. But if you read what their public officials say about it, one of the things they're arguing is that the very stringent measures are not sustainable over long periods of time, and that we know that this is, disease is going to be with us for a long time, and that you have to develop a strategy that is sustainable, that in this country, what we seem to have been doing is a little bit more of kind of a feast or famine approach, and that you have very stringent lockdowns, which people have a very hard time dealing with, and then they rebel against it, and they all head to the beaches, metaphorically. And so I wonder if there's anything to that argument, the idea that over the, a long period of time, you need a strategy that's more sustainable, and you can't just have a society go back and forth from very extreme mitigation measures to sort of nothing. At the end of the day, it is up to the American people to make decisions about what they're going to do. Dr. Wen, why don't you take that? I mean, I, I'm, you're right in that this is actually what we're seeing in the American people right now. I mean, all along, yes, a lot of people have followed social distancing measures, but a lot of people have been slow to do it. And clearly, we're seeing this uprising, if you will, um, these um, not just among the protesters, but also among individuals. As soon as there's a nice day outside, they're going to the beach or the park, and which I, I understand fully the rationale for doing so. But I think there's also... This, it's not just quarantine fatigue. I think it's also a denial, in a sense, of the just the terrible numbers that we're seeing. And I see this reflected on my own Facebook feed because there just seems to be this huge disconnect, right? I have yeah. a number of colleagues, and I'm sure Dr. Patel can talk about this too. I have all these colleagues who are healthcare workers who are saying, please stay at home. You know, we don't have the privilege of staying at home. Stay at home for us, stay at home for other patients. This is what we're seeing on the front lines. It's awful. You don't want to die like this, basically. And then I'm seeing other friends and, and colleagues post their pictures of being on the beach and being outside and having picnics and barbecues and play dates. And that disconnect, I think, is because those who are not on the front lines don't see the immediate impact on their lives. And by the time they do, it is going to be too late. And so I, I think that, unfortunately, in this country, I just don't see us going back to another lockdown. I think that we have basically made the decision, even if we haven't quite announced it as such, we basically made the decision that we're going to accept people dying, people getting sick for months, years to come, preventable deaths and preventable illnesses, and we're going to suffer the consequences. Kavita? And I'll say, I'll, I'll say public health, we, we know that kind of public health and our economy are inextricably linked. Like, I think, like, I think kind of, re, so because so much of this is not just about like pent up energy to get out, like we've all, it's, that's unanimous and universal. But I also think there's an incredible amount of sensitivity to the fact that we need to reopen our country, because we can't crater into a depression so, I, but I think the problem that kind of, you know, I, I think we're all in agreement that the concerns that health officials and people in healthcare settings are raising is that doing too much and relaxing any of this, even as individuals too soon, 
can actually take us a lot more into a cratering of some kind economically and health-wise. You know, we've been talking about the fact that we're trying to buy time here. I mean, we've had one breakthrough in terms of treatments. It's not some amazing breakthrough, but there are more to come. So part of this is as an American, what can I do so that I can buy time against a virus that knows zero boundaries and has zero sensitivity to time? Do either of you see value in the uh, in the Swedish model? I mean, I guess it's too early to know, but I wonder what you think of how they're approaching this. Yeah, I'd be really curious with Dr. Wen. I'm going to say this. I, when I first read about it and I talked to a friend who's in Sweden, I said, this is crazy. And mm-hmm. I just, I'm, I'm watching so much of it because I've heard and I've been watching some of the data where it does say that they are experiencing kind of an increase in cases. So it, it's possible that these strategies We're not working. But what I think the Swedes did in my very kind of naive American impression is they tried to strike a balance, as we've been talking about, between social distancing and doing something that seems, you know, unlike literally, unlike Italy or France, kind of true lockdown. Um, And then they've been trying to balance that with having parts of their economy open. It does seem to be working. However, the concern is that there are numbers that are increasing and it does there is this potential like a rubber band to kind of pull back, collapse and backfire. I don't know if uh, Dr. Wen has a I, I just I'm, I'm a little stunned by it, but think it might fail um, in the in the total. Yeah. And I look at all these other countries like New Zealand um, that have been successful in containing COVID-19. How did New Zealand do that? Because the, the last I, I looked, they essentially had ended transmission of the disease. How did they do that? Yeah, so it's something that we could have done too. And I actually think is what I thought, and I think a lot of public health experts thought that we were in the process of doing until all these states started to lift their their, their restrictions. Ideally, you get the number of new infections to such a low rate that for every new infection that you're able to identify everyone who tests positive, you're able to trace all their contacts and um, quarantine their contracts, isolate all those individuals who test positive and basically stop the virus in its tracks because hmm. that's what it takes, right? You're, you're, if you can identify every new infection and every person they could have infected, then that's the way that you stop COVID-19. Um, the problem in our country is that level of infections is at such a high rate that we could not get our hands around it at that point. And that's why we haven't been able to do this. But we actually had a chance of containing it. I mean, if you literally just froze everyone in place for two weeks, you could do this. But it's it's too late and, and we can't really catch up at this point. I mean, I think we can if we were yeah. serious about social distancing, if we yeah. imposed yeah. a two week total freeze. But I don't think that we can do that at this yeah. point. Dr. Wen, I, I want to ask you about the role of uh, public health officials in the states and in municipalities. You know, we, there's been a lot of attention on the federal government's role, a lot of criticism of the Trump administration's response, criticism about coordinating national strategies. And of course, there's been a lot of praise of a lot of governors around, around the um, country. But I'm interested in the role that the top public health officials play in, in the states and how they particularly at this moment when states' governors are beginning to open up their economies and balancing the health risks against the 
economic uh, issues. You've done this job. So how, how does a public health official in a state think about the role, think about how to advise an executive or a governor running a state? How do you keep politics out of it? How do you kind of withstand the kind of political pressures that governors face in these situations? And what is the, you know, what is the kind of the mission of a public health official in a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, it it's a very tricky position to be in. Look, I, you know, the job of every elected official, um, the governor, the mayor, et cetera, it is to balance all these competing interests. And the job of the public health official is to make sure that the public health necessity is front and center. Because nobody else is going to put it front and center except for the public health official. And you know that that is your job, that if you don't focus on the science, if you don't advocate from the public health evidence-based perspective, nobody else is going to. And at the end of the day, a decision may still be made that's not what you would have done um, if you were only weighing the public health interest. But if the public health interest is not there, then it's also your failure too. Because public health is always the forgotten part, right? There's no face of public health because everything that we do is preventing something bad from happening. And so nobody else is going to be seeing the impact except you as the public health official. Mm -hmm. And I think now during COVID-19, we're seeing even clearer than ever what happens when you don't invest in public health, when the public health infrastructure, the workforce has been decimated over the decades because it's always the first thing on the chopping block because nobody thinks about it because it's the face of something that didn't happen. But I think that the public health officials in this case have really been the heroes because they have been able to focus squarely on the numbers, on lives and on following science and evidence, making sure that that position is put forth even though politically it's the it's a very challenging thing to do um, to take these early aggressive actions. But I think the states that have done that have really saved lives. And I want to commend the public health officials for mm -hmm. being brave and and, uh, and diligent about putting yeah. that perspective forward. Just one thing, I can't help but think this. I think it illustrates how public health and politics like need to intersect in a way, I think, Lena did it in Baltimore very effectively because you can't you can't pick necessarily kind of how or what knowledge base your governor or mayor might have or not have about public health. And a skill set for any public health leader or any health professional leader is really kind of understanding where in the political spectrum as well as where in that matrix is that leader and how can you best get information. Data always drives it. But how can you offer a way, and you, you see Dr. Fauci doing this quite brilliantly, sometimes it doesn't work, but you have to be able to speak to your audience and you have to understand that that person is operating in a political context and they are pressured in a political context. So your, your job as a public health leader or any type of health professional is how do I bring that data in a way that's actionable, that I can actually get somebody to listen because I think you've seen examples now nationally where it's not working and where it is working. And I think that, for me, it's an incredibly salient point to take home to anybody. I've got one question for the doctors. There was a quote in a Washington Post story over the weekend that really grabbed me. It was sort of a deep dive into the inner debates, internal debates within the Trump administration, within the task force. And somebody was quoted as saying the public health professionals 
who were advising the task force, uh, presumably starting with Dr. Burks and uh, and Dr. Fauci, were like the school nurse trying to tell the principal how to run the school. I just wondered what your reactions were to that comment. I saw that quote, and I'll say, I'll just start by saying, number one, I couldn't help but think there's a little, you know, I, I, I'm also making assumptions about things, but there there did feel like there was this air of sexism and, and hierarchical kind of <laughs> patriarchy that, that really just did not make me feel good. Put that aside, because I think that needs to be said, just to put it out there. Put that aside. It, is, it speaks exactly to kind of the point I was trying to make, that there is this implication that somehow, that somehow politics and leadership is against science or vice versa. And that's, to me, that's just entirely unfounded. And I feel pretty strongly like this is one of the many reasons that we need to have. I think the American public has said with their feet and with their decisions that they're staying home because they believe in the science. And I, I just am very troubled by the fact that at the highest levels of office and decision making, that that somehow is a sentiment. And the fact that it's on black and white means, even if it's terrible rumor, that at least that sentiment exists. I can't dispute that. And I will. I, my take home for this, as we're just just trying to close, I so want there to be a spotlight on effective models of health and leadership and health and policies. And I, I personally think that that's actually exactly where most Americans are. They believe they're public health professionals above even their political leaders. And I'm hoping that that's what keeps us safe going into this, you know, kind of plateau and wave two. I have one last question for both of you. This is something that we um, spoke about the last time uh, both of you were on the podcast. And it's uh, an issue that uh, I think we all think is important uh, to stay focused on. And that is the the disparities in terms of, you know, marginalized communities, uh, you know, minority groups in this country who have been hit disproportionately harder, who have less access to the healthcare system. And uh, Dr. Wen, you talked about some of the things that you think needed to be done. I'm wondering if you've seen um, any progress. I did see a story about uh, the mayor of Washington, uh, Muriel Bowser, I think actually building new capacity in Ward 8 one of the poor awards uh, in Washington, D.C. Are you seeing that, you know, in Washington, in Baltimore, in in other cities uh, where uh, those kinds of at-risk communities uh, exist? Are you seeing progress, I guess is what I'm asking. I mean, I'm seeing attention to the issue Mm -hmm. of disparities Mm -hmm. and inequities, which is the first step. But this is not something that's going to be remedied quickly. I mean, we have to, uh, it's the acute on chronic issue, I think that we talked about last time, that we have to fix the acute problem now and increase testing, increase access, um, increase um, other policies like paid sick leave and other things that definitely impact the acute recovery, but also look at the chronic underlying conditions. And I think that's going to that's going to be a much longer process. But um, just to close out too, I, I very much agree with Dr. Patel about science, that if we ignore science, we are going to pay the price. That is what we're seeing now, that we are ignoring best practices for public health. We are ignoring what the experts are saying unequivocally should be done to contain the virus. And as a result, we've in essence decided that we are not going to contain COVID-19 in this country. And let's now see what happens. But unfortunately, seeing what happens is going to come at the cost of many tens of thousands, if not more, American lives. 
I do have one last very quick question for the two of you, which is what are the things that this pandemic, this health crisis in this country have exposed in terms of the the kind of weaknesses in our public health system? I think, Dr. Wen, you alluded to the fact that we have not invested enough in our healthcare infrastructure. I'm sure that's true. Is there anything else that you would point to that you think needs to be that we need to focus on and that maybe we have an opportunity here to deal with since these things have been exposed to the public? I mean, I would just say that it's not so much the healthcare infrastructure, although that is a component of it, it's the public health infrastructure, specifically for, for example, the um, local, the workforce for local public health has been cut 25% in the last two decades. I mean, now we're wondering, well, how can we get these contact tracers? Well, you can't have contact tracers because there are literally, you know, the same people who are doing preparedness work and tracing down infectious illnesses are also the ones managing the opioid epidemic, are also the ones doing mental health in schools, are also the ones doing home visits for pregnant women. I mean, um, it's stretched our public health infrastructure stretched so thin. And yet public health and the focus on social determinants of health are actually what makes people healthy or unhealthy. And I hope that longer term, we'll have an understanding of not just health care, but health and attention to these deep-rooted disparities mm-hmm. and inequities that are present too. The only thing I'll add to that, Dan, is that I keep going kind of upstream for some of this. We've, as a society, decided that, you know, access to health care is kind of, you know, it's not a human or universal right. And I'm not trying to get super political, but I can't help but think that if you look at other countries and you think about, you know, whether it's South Korea or European countries, what really helped them? It was what, you know, it was what Lena said. They had a public health mindset and then they also had a pretty easy access policy. Basically, anybody who needs care can seek out care in a pretty convenient way. I mean, that's that is not something we have in the United States of America. I'm a doctor, and for me to access health care, I have to go through so many hoops, which I actually know how to do. But 99% of the population doesn't. And quite candidly, even when we have people in insurance companies or the government tell us, don't worry, anything related to COVID, you, quote, won't have to pay, I don't know if I trust that. We have mm-hmm. had enough examples. So I think that there's, if there's one you know, thing that this ex- has exposed, it's that even at the highest socioeconomic status levels, we have a pretty terrible process to actually get health care. Well, uh, Drs. Patel and, and, and Wen, we've been greedy with your time, but your insights are so valuable for our audience. We, we really do appreciate it. You're our, our medical and public health dynamic duo, and uh, we are looking forward to having you back on the podcast very soon. Great. Thank you. Thanks to Yahoo News medical contributor Kavita Patel and former Baltimore Health Commissioner Lena Wen, as well as former editor-in-chief of Time Magazine Nancy Gibbs for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.